0: We're about to listen to the full interview with Ralph Blumenthal. Sections of it were originally included in our two-part UAP episode. If you haven't listened to the full episode, we recommend you go listen. It'll provide context for this interview. Ralph Blumenthal had a long career working as a reporter at the New York Times. Together with Leslie Kane, he brought the explosive story about a secret government program that had been quietly studying UFOs. Regardless of the government's public denials of any such program existing, he later helped bring the incredible story of David Brush to the public spotlight. His reporting has led to multiple congressional hearings being held on the subject of UFOs. We spoke with him about how he came upon these stories and what the future may hold for disclosure.
1: My name is Ralph Blumenthal. I spent 45 years on the staff of The New York Times covering uh, organized crime, uh, Nazi war criminals, investigative reporting, corruption, the cops. I'm now a distinguished lecturer at Baruch College of the City University of New York, and I teach summers at Phillips Exeter Academy International Summer School program for kids from all over the world. And I continue to you know, freelance and write for different publications.
0: And so you've written pretty extensively and done some amazing reporting on UAPs. How did that interest first spring up for you?
1: Well, it all started really with John Mack in 2004. I was a New York Times correspondent in Texas, based in Houston, and I happened to pick up a paperback of a book uh, I'd never heard of uh, by an author I'd never heard of, uh, Dr. John Mack, a psychiatrist at Harvard, uh, who got very interested in UFOs and alien abduction encounters uh, stories told to him by patients, and I thought this was pretty interesting that, um, you know, esteemed Harvard psychiatrist would be interested in an offbeat subject like that, and I I thought the book was really interesting. I thought I'd give him a call for an interview. He was already very famous, which I didn't know. Uh, infamous in some quarters, uh, but certainly uh, renowned uh, for his uh, psychiatric expertise and interest in this offbeat topic. Anyway, a few days later, I picked up the the paper to see he'd been run over in London and killed by a drunk driver. And that really started my interest. Uh, I uh, talked to his family. I got access to his voluminous archives. Uh, he, He was a tremendous saver of material. He'd done an awful lot we can talk about his contributions. And that got me started. I spent 17 years you know uh, uh, researching and writing this book, uh, The Believer, about uh, John Mack. And in, in, towards the end of that time, in, in in 2017, a series of events occurred with Leslie Kane that got me interested in you know updating the story uh, with news of a secret Pentagon unit. That was investigating uh, UFOs. No one knew about it. I can, you can tell that story uh, uh, anyway. So that, that kind of overlap, but that, that those, those were the two important events that got me interested in this topic.
0: Yeah, and actually, let's let's maybe jump into that article that you wrote because I feel like that really was kind of the resurgence for the modern interest in UAP phenomena and the public's perception. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about that article and kind of give us a little summary of what you uncovered through your reporting?
1: So in 2017, I was hard at work on my John Mack book, and I had gotten to know Leslie Kane, uh, who was the premier UFO researcher in the country, probably in the world. Uh, she wrote a book about pilots and generals um, who have gone on the record uh, with UFO sightings. And um, because of my research into John Mack, I'd gotten to know her, she'd been very close with Bud Hopkins, who had got uh, you know, a, a top researcher and artist, really unlike John Mack, who was a professional you know uh, psychiatrist somebody who, who studied the workings of the human mind but Hopkins was an artist but he got interested in the subject anyway he was the one who got John Mack uh, interested in in the topic and, and Leslie was very close to Bud who was dying of um, cancer back in uh, 2011 anyway uh, so I got to know Leslie uh, while I was working on my UFO book my book on John Mack and le- in 2017 Uh, Leslie went down to Washington in around September or so, uh, October and attended a meeting where she learned about the secret UFO office, UAP office inside the Pentagon. It had gone under different names, OSAP originally and then ATIP. The head of it was a guy named Lou Elizondo, an intelligence guy who had just submitted his resignation because he wasn't getting enough um, support from uh, the Pentagon. But this unit, uh, unbeknownst to anybody outside the government and many people in the government, was secretly studying UFO encounters and taking video so it showed that the government was interested even though in you know end of 1969 with the project blue book it said that there was nothing to investigate and it was the government was officially dropping its interest in ufos that wasn't true so anyway so leslie found out about this secret pentagon office and came to me with um information about it and i took it to the times i'd left the times in 2009 after 45 years but I still had good contacts there. And I told them that this was a a sensational story about a secret government unit that was investigating UFOs and that the the director had just resigned. So it was a great story all around and the times went for it without much prodding. Uh, We had it all on the record. There was no secret sources. We had Lou Elizondo's performance evaluations. We had, you know, chapter and verse. Uh, So there really wasn't anything to take on faith. Uh, The Times saw it was a good story and and ran with it. We partnered with Elaine Cooper, the Pentagon correspondent. So she had very good sources in the Pentagon. And she went out to interview Harry Reid, by the way, the Senate Majority Leader, who had gotten the money uh, for this, uh, uh, you know, secret uh, $22 million in secret money uh, for this uh, Pentagon office. Anyway, uh, the story broke in um, December uh, December 17th, uh, 16th, I think, online. Uh, 2017, and it, it really it was a kind of an earthquake.
0: While you were researching and writing the story, what sort of documents, video, or other evidence did you see to corroborate the writing that you were doing?
1: First of all, we had a, we had to authenticate uh, Lou Elizondo's record, and uh, we got his performance evaluations. There was no doubt He was who he said he was an intelligence agent, by the way, he was still under a lot of uh, classified restrictions. So a lot of the programs he'd been involved in and the operations he'd been involved in were were classified. But we saw enough of his evaluations to to verify that he was who he said he was. Uh, Plus, we had eventually three videos, short snippets of encounters between Navy jets and um, UAP uh, that we revealed for the first time. Now, they were short, you know, uh, videos, of, of much longer videos, which we, we couldn't see. But what we saw was not classified. Uh, what Leslie was shown and brought back to me and we took to the New York Times was not classified. The Times put them up. Uh, they, to this day, um, they are shown, you know, widely. They, they were a, a sensation. They were the most widely viewed Videos, you know, I think the New York Times may may have ever put up because they were so mysterious, and they showed these objects, whatever they were. And by the way, I want to emphasize that much of this is is very mysterious. We did not provide answers, uh, nor did we, uh, you know, say we did. We don't claim to 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 have the answer to this mystery. All we're saying is that these, which, which is what the government eventually acknowledged, by the way, that these objects are real. Whatever they are, they're not hallucinations, they're not, you know, images of clouds, as so many so-called skeptics have said over the years, they're not, you know, weather balloons, or all these kind of nonsensical explanations, um, contortions, which have been resorted to to uh, throw people off the track. These are real, real objects that can perform extraordinary aerodynamic feats, which is what, you know, freaked out the pilots. Um, and by the way, these are the best observers, you know, in the world. You know, these are not just ordinary people who happen to see something in the sky. These are highly trained, uh, you know, uh, fighter pilots. And they were saying that these things resembled nothing known on Earth in their aerodynamics and the way they could uh, turn on a dime, change direction, disappear, operate underwater, apparently, because some of these things was, was seen churning underwater. So that's really the story of, of you know, uh, what we took to the New York Times and why the New York Times went for
0: it. So you're saying it's definitely not swamp gas.
1: It's definitely not swamp gas. It's not fly specs on the windshield. Uh, it's not mental illness. You know, by the way, John Mack dealt with all that too. He had a lot of skeptics uh, who, and his accounts, by the way, we did not deal with alien abduction at all in the New York Times account. Um, that was a totally, uh, different dimension of, uh, research that I dealt with in my book, but that we, all we said in the New York times, were that these were real objects or appeared to be real objects that could do extraordinary things, but we did not speculate and have not speculated in the New York times or anywhere else on where these things may be coming from, who's behind the wheel, why they're here, you know, that's, that's another element of the story that, um, you know, we can we can talk about, but that was not part of the New York Times reporting.
0: Yeah, obviously, there's there's a lot of stigma and has been a lot of stigma around UFOs. Um, I think even more stigma around the topic of alien abductions. And I'm curious to know, like, how did that work? And does it feed in to any of the new government um, revelations that have come out about the secret programs? Has there been any revelations about the UFO abduction phenomenon as well?
1: Yeah. Well, the government has been very careful not to stray into speculation, and um, it, it did come up. We can get to this in you know a discussion, but it did come up in the the last hearing with David Grush, um, the a former intelligence guy, whose um, story we broke, Leslie and I, um, in the debrief uh, website. But the government has not said anything about. Uh, where these objects may be coming from, why they're here, you know, presumably they're intelligent because they can do these, uh, you know, strange maneuvers that are not known on earth. And by the way, they, you know, all the people we've talked to and who have testified have pretty much discounted the idea that they could be adversarial, China, Russia any other earthly power because they can do things that are just not known on earth they can uh, achieve extraordinary speeds plunge down to the water and sometimes underwater turn on a dime uh, don't seem to have any means of propulsion by the way they've been eyeballed by people like Dave Fravor who testified before Congress a pilot who saw these one of these things called the tic-tac, like a giant rounded, uh, you know, tic-tac candy. No no wings, no tail, no plume of propulsion. But the government has not speculated on, you know, where they think these things are coming from. Are they extraterrestrial? Are they intelligent? Uh, because, uh, you know, again, nobody knows.
0: Yeah, the recent term of non-human intelligence just makes the whole story feel almost even more mysterious because you're left speculating, if it's not extraterrestrials, what could this possibly
1: Exactly. I mean, that's sort of the conclusion you're left with, but no no one is saying it officially because it it involves a a leap that that no one in the government is willing to take at this point.
0: Could you maybe give us an overview of what the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program was and, and just kind of what their goal was?
1: Yeah, it started off as I said as OSAP, another acronym, and it was a an office uh, inside the Pentagon that was analyzing these encounters that Navy pilots were were having uh, with these uh, with these craft. And some of them were going happened on the West Coast off uh, San Diego, some happened on the East Coast off Virginia, and Navy pilots were sent up to encounter them. And came back with extraordinary stories, some of which we reported in the New York Times. There was one really strange story about a sphere, a big round, you know, sphere that looked like it had a square inside it. The corners of the I'm not a square, a cube, a cube inside it. The corners of the cube were touching the inside skin of this round thing, and it went, it it uh, cut a path between two navy jets. It scared the daylights out of um, you know, one of the pilots who reported to our source, uh, who told us a story afterwards. Guy came back and he was white as a sheet. And uh, Ryan Graves, the pilot, who also testified before Congress, uh, asked this guy what happened. He said, uh, you know, he used a few choice epithets that this thing came between him and a fellow pilot and uh, was very close and uh, he could not figure out what it was. It was very, very strange but he definitely got a good view of it so um you know that was one of the, the stories we were eventually able to put in the new york times
0: when you first saw the videos that came from the nimitz which are now referred to as the tic tac video kind of what was your first reaction to that and then also maybe a quick follow-up on that is is how did that come into your hands initially i know you said it wasn't classified but why wasn't it released earlier
1: well leslie and i don't like to talk about how we get certain things and you know other people have said things about you know uh, how they supplied this information to the New York Times. I, well, we're not going to talk about that. Let's just say that when Leslie went down to to Washington and met with Lou Elizondo and others, and Chris Mellon and and a few, you know some of the top people involved in the. A tip program both inside and outside she saw the videos and she was able to get three of them um as we said they're not classified that we um we got them electronically i mean it was not like you know film like canisters (laughs) we're dealing now in the digital age so everything is you know uh, is um electric you know digital so uh, we we got these videos and we took them to the new york times and we were amazed um, because you can hear the voices of the pilots uh, talking about them, uh, you know, on, on on the video. Oh my God, look at that! You know, and they're they're following the, the this object. And they were in one of the videos. They were trying to zero in with a camera with the camera of the of the of the jet that they were in. They were trying to you know zero in on this object skipping along the waves or it looked like you know just above the water. And then when when the camera fastened on it, you could hear the joy in their in their voices. So they were very excited. We were very excited to see that. And Helene Cooper, our Pentagon colleague from The Times, who had the videos, too, and was was running them on her computer down in the Washington Bureau. She drew a tremendous crowd in the Bureau. They were all, you know, clustered around her, staring at this video and Uh, Until then, she told us afterwards they were kind of making fun of her, some of her colleagues, you know, doing like spooky music sounds uh, like, you know, (laughs) this was all, uh, you know, fantasy or something. But when when she put the videos up and she was looking at them, they all clustered around and they were freaked out as anyone is looking at them. I mean, to this day, they've not been debunked, uh, despite the fact that so-called skeptics have tried to. You know, throw doubt on them or explain them as you know all all kinds of different things, but then with no success. They they remain completely uh, mysterious and authentic uh, in terms of this is what the FLIR you know cameras um, the I- imaging devices on the Navy jets picked up. So um, my reaction was you know like everybody else. Oh my God! You know what could these things be? One of them looked like a a top like a gyroscope spinning in space and it was turning at one point and um, and that's what attracted the attention because when 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 these things were first captured these images and shown to other uh, pilots on the, um, the Princeton and other ships that were part of the battle group, you know that um, went out in search of these. Uh, UAP. You know, the Navy personnel who saw the the images were freaked out as well. Everybody has to be looking at these things. I mean, you can't not be, you know, uh, completely absorbed and wondering what the hell these things could be.
0: How did ATIP get its funding? How much did it cost to run this program? And where did the funding come for this program?
1: Well, Harry Reid got the funding. Harry Reid was an interesting player, you know, as a Senate majority leader. First of all, he was very brave to come out to us. A lot of people in Congress, now it's it's loosened up, but back then, back in the early 2000s, and certainly before that, it was kind of a kiss of death for anybody in Congress to say they were interested in UFOs because their opponents would make fun of them. I remember, remember what Jimmy Carter went through when he said he had seen a UFO and Gerald Ford got hearings going and you know was subject to some ridicule for that. So the stigma was still very much part of the, the picture. So Harry Reid, uh, as the Senate Majority Leader, had the clout and he had the interest. Uh, he had heard stories himself uh, from uh, colleagues Ted Stevens of Alaska and Daniel Inouye of Hawaii, with two other members of Congress who were very intrigued by these stories, which have been circulating for a long time. I mean, this you know, this hasn't happened. This is not something that happened only in recent years. This has been going on, as we know, since the cold you know beginnings of the Cold War, World War II, even, and before that. So these stories have been around, but no one was courageous enough in Congress to really grapple with the implications and see what what it was all about and whether it had any meaning for national security and you know future of humanity, big questions like that. So Harry Reid was intrigued by uh, the uh, stories he'd heard, and he got a f- secret funding, 22 million dollars, to fund this Pentagon office, uh, which I said, OSAP, ATip advanced aerospace threat identification program because all these things are tied in some way to national security that's the way you get money you get congress to appropriate money you know you don't get it because you say this is altruistic this is good for mankind you present it as a threat to national security which in a way it certainly is because there's a technology operating here that nobody understands and if it falls into adversarial hands it could be very very detrimental to american security for sure, so um, it, it's it's not hard to imagine that you know um, the way to get funding for these programs is to say, hey, there's something up there in the sky that we can't explain, and maybe underwater uh, that uh, defies uh, our best defense technology, and we want to know about it. So that was the, the the springboard to him getting this secret funding, and um, and that's what started it.
0: You said this funding was secret, so they, they weren't open about the funds and how they were being spent at the time.
1: It was very, you know, the Pentagon budget uh, is, is huge, obviously, uh, and there's all kinds of uh, cutouts or so. So it's not uh, easy to find anything, any particular. Uh, ap- appropriation in there, and some of that is for good reason. They don't want, you know, obviously adversaries to know where what we're researching, how much money we're spending. So this money was buried in the budget; it was not uh, flagged in any way for outsiders to see. As a matter of fact, this is one of the complaints of David Grush, the guy who just testified with the two other pilot with two pilots. Uh, In the latest congressional hearing, he said there's things going on with the budget, all kinds of games that are being played with the budget that Congress uh, needs to know about, should know about, and is illegally withheld uh, from knowing about. So um, there's all kinds of uh, shenanigans going on with money being shifted from one pocket to another. That the American people should know about, that certainly members of Congress who are, you know, charged with overseeing the spending, you know, even at the highest security levels, someone has to know what's being spent and how, but they weren't being told. So this was not something that we could, we at the New York Times or anybody else could have found on our own, this $22 million appropriation. It was deeply buried. Uh, in the Pentagon budget in a way that no no one could ever find it.
0: Yeah, since this has become more public in the reporting on it, we found out that a good amount of that money went to Robert Bigelow to help do research. Can you talk about who he was and kind of what his involvement in the funding was?
1: Yeah, Robert Bigelow, uh, who I wrote up in a separate piece in the Times because he was very interested in a wide range of paranormal activity, including survival of consciousness and life after death. Robert Bigelow is an aerospace entrepreneur, a billionaire, Uh, who who made his money in the uh, hotel business. And he he made so much money and was so interested in aerospace that he he built up his aerospace business to the point where he has a habitat uh, in the International Space Station. He designed an an inflatable habitat. It's very small when it gets sent up, you know, up to the space station, but then it expands and it's a place where uh, astronauts can live. Uh, and expand their housing at the International, International Space Station. So he's very um, techn- technically adept. Um, I mean, he's very innovative in terms of his aerospace business. And um, he was very close to Harry Reid. He supported Harry Reid, he's also from Las Vegas. And um, so when Harry Reid got this $22 million appropriation, uh, you know, it's one thing to get the money uh, secretly appropriated for research, but you got to get somebody to do something with it. Otherwise, the money just sits there. You know what good is the money if you can't apply it? So he needed um, somebody with the uh, uh, with the programs and the the infrastructure to know how to how to use that money. And a good part of that twenty two million dollars did go to. Um, to Robert Bigelow, not in any uh, corrupt way that we could find, uh, but in a, because he, he was legitimately an expert in in this field. I mean, again, I, he had the uh, habitat at the space station. He had Bigelow Aerospace, so it was not like you know this guy who had no connection to aerospace technology getting a windfall of money. First of all, it wasn't even that much money uh, when you think of the you know the the. Money needed to do research in this field—it's very, it's very obviously very expensive to uh, set up these cameras and to send up jets and all that. Anyway, and to analyze the the results. So Bigelow did get a good portion of that money, but he put out a lot of reports. Uh, some of which, many of which were public, by the way. He he farmed out the money to different um, university professors who did all kinds of research. So we know where some of that money went. Some of it remains classified, so so we don't know. But um, there was no suggestion that it was misspent or, uh, you know, siphoned off improperly.
0: What was the Pentagon's response after your article came out?
1: Well, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, the, um, the Pentagon can be very literal at times when, when it wants to be. And it it basically knocked down the story or tried to by saying that, you know, the the denials are always very carefully worded. The Pentagon has no evidence that, you know, um, UAP are extraterrestrial. Well, that's true. There is no evidence uh, that they're extraterrestrial. Uh, It's an inference because they can do things that nothing on Earth can do. But um, if you look at the denials, uh, and especially over the years, I mean, over this, the decades, uh, the Pentagon has, has been very disingenuous in sharing its information with the, with the American people, which is what, you know, I mean, American people are entitled to know stuff about this program as long as it's not classified and, uh, you know, if it doesn't involve national security. But, the, you know, the fact that there may be extraterrestrial intelligence operating in American airspace um, is not necessarily a national security you know, issue. Uh, it's something that belongs to all of humanity, not just Americans, but all of people all over the world should know if, if there's been a contact made with some technology that we cannot explain. Uh, we don't need to know how, how it works or, you know, or what the technical details are, how it can be reverse engineered, but the fact that it exists, you, you might say, is something that really belongs to all mankind. So the Pentagon responses, I never put much stock in because they would seem to be very carefully worded to, to non-denial denials, you could call them. And you know, Lou, Lou Alessandro later had a, had a, I think he even has a current pending case against the Pentagon for you know claiming things about that, dis- disavowing his positions in, in in the government and in the Pentagon, and we we have established to our satisfaction, New York Times' satisfaction, that he is who he said he is. But uh, there there were forces in the Pentagon, and this is what came up at the hearing just recently a few weeks ago, that seemed seemed bent on undercutting uh, these accounts and, and undercutting
0: witnesses. At some point, the Pentagon started calling UFOs UAPs. Why did they change the term, you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, UFOs, just like flying saucers, the original term, came to have a, a sort of a um, sensational uh, connotation. And UFOs sort of inherited that, and they wanted to get away from that. So they came up with, unidenti- first it became unidentified aerial phenomena. And then uh, because these things didn't only seem to operate in the air, they seemed to operate underwater, they became unidentified anomalous phenomena. So the, the Pentagon keeps shifting its terminology, uh, and I guess that that's welcome because the, the, the phenomenon seems to be, uh, the more we understand about it, is more mysterious than ever. It's not just confined to the skies, as I said, but underwater in other media, another in in other medium, uh, no, notably the ocean. So that's why they changed. And I think they wanted to get away from the term UFO, which had this sensational connotation.
0: What was the biggest challenge in getting this article released?
1: Well, you know, there's a stigma in the, to this subject. Uh, you have to convince uh, you know um, skeptical editors that you're not dealing with fantasy here. You're not dealing with you know we're not talking about aliens. We're talking about technical phenomena that have been documented, caught on thermal thermal imaging cameras, and eyeballed by you know uh, very highly trained pilots. So you, you have to convince people. You know, I've done a lot of research in this field now. I mean, I started in 2004 with my John Mack research, but a lot of the so-called skeptics have not done this this kind of research. All they know is that this can't be true. And, you know, it, it, on, on some level, it can't be true because it's so wild and so hard to imagine that your first reaction is, this can't be true. I, I agree with that. You, you, It doesn't make any sense. You know, how could... A craft come from millions of light years away, presumably, you know, and, and I mean, the distances are mind boggling. Uh, how could that be? So the skeptics have had a field day just throwing um, doubt into the subject. But the more you study it and you, you, you look at the actual accounts of people like Dave Fravor and Ryan Graves and David Grush. And and ordinary people who ha, you know who have no axe to grind who have over the, the the decades have come forward with these accounts and if it was just one person you could write it off and say well it's just one farmer you know in Ohio who's, who who was Confused by the lights of an airplane, but millions of people have seen these things close up, and 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 um, law enforcement people and experts and astronomers have all reported similar sightings. So you know, anyway, I've gotten I've gone off on a rant here, but I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm angry at the, that the skeptics have so so often you know seized seized the debate by saying how could this be true, and and of course they're right. I mean, how could this be true, and yet, the the more you study it, the more you see that there are there's something going on here that that remains a mystery.
0: After your article came out, what was the direct result of this reporting?
1: I think a lot of people followed it. I mean, uh, I, I I'm happy to say I think the the article was bulletproof uh, because the Times was very careful. Uh, we didn't make any great claims, as I said, we didn't. Speculate on where these things had come from, or how they got here, or who, you know, what kind of intelligence might be operating uh, these craft. We we strictly stuck to the fact that we had a very highly what's the word? I mean, uh, people whose whose records were unassailable, intelligence people who were given tremendous responsibility and other, you know other fields coming forward with this information we had their service records so very very credible people so as far as I'm aware people tried to knock it down by the way you know so-called experts out there were saying well these images could be this could be that but um, nobody uh, successfully debunked uh, the story uh, which is why it, it carried such weight and other p- publications, you know, um, jumped in. Some w- were right with us as we were reported this. Um, ProPublica uh, was very close to us in, in its reporting. They had gotten some of the same information from Lou Alessandro and others. So it was kind of a race who would get the information out first. I think we beat them by a little. But um, and a lot of other publications then followed.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this reporting has had such far-reaching effects, positive effects. I mean, honestly, even the modern whistleblower uh, movement that we're seeing, I think, has been propped up and helped by this reporting and taking away the stigma of UAPs. Could you talk about the UAP task force? Because I feel like that followed pretty shortly after and kind of what that was.
1: You know, after ATIP and the money ran out, and the money ran out pretty quickly. It started, I think it was funded in uh, 2007 originally by Harry Reid with this $22 million under the original name of the program, OSAP, and then the money kind of uh, ran out very quickly. So the government then instituted a number of other uh, units to to continue the research, and one of them was the UAP task force, which, which by the way, very little is known about. And, I mean, it was not public. Uh, the heads of it uh, were not, did not talk to the press, didn't, we, we couldn't interview them. So all we knew about was that um, there was this unit, and eventually it came out with a report, which uh, a report to Congress, which said, interestingly enough, that these objects—and this is the first time I'm aware that the government has said this—that these objects are probably real; that they are not illusions, or hallucinations, or you know, fabrications, hoaxes, or misidentifications of aircraft. There's something up there that 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 was real; that the government uh, could not identify and that could do all these uh, incredible aerodynamic uh, maneuvers. So, uh, so that was the first report of the UAP task force, uh, came out in, uh, I, I think, 2021, I'm, I'm blanking on the date exactly, but and, and, uh, the, the government, uh, Congress, to its credit, uh, in, in the um, defense authorization uh, bills that it passed, required the Pentagon to report periodically on its research. Uh, so, again, that was the first time uh, the the Congress was holding the administration to account uh, to report to the American people what it could. Now, so some of that reporting was, uh, to the Congress, uh, classified. And there were two tiers. There was the public reporting, and then there was the uh, classified Reports which we have never seen, um, we didn't try to get a hold of. We, we don't want to go to prison. Leslie and I have been very careful to confine our reporting to what is public. Uh, we hear a lot of stories, you know. We poke around, but we uh, we understand that there's a lot of classified material uh, in this field, and uh, we don't we don't mess around with that.
0: Your article in 2017 was just such a bombshell. But I feel like. Your more recent article even was even more amazing and shocking in terms of the information that's revealed. Um, Can you kind of give us an update and summary of that article that you've published in June 5th, 2023, and what that
1: was about? Yeah, so after our 2017 article, we did a number of other articles in the New York Times, including uh, close encounters with uh, some of these UAP that we quoted pilots like Ryan Graves and Dave Fravor about which zeroed in on the strange nature of these things uh, and the fact that the pilots were encountering them all the time, Navy pilots, uh, Air Force. Navy was more forthcoming uh, than the Air Force, but Air Force pilots too. And uh, then we uh, actually, another story we did for the Times really mentioned for the first time, as far as I'm aware, that the U.S., that, that, that Congress had been briefed about supposed recoveries of craft, Uh, That had crashed. And that was a very difficult story to get into The New York Times uh, because it had to be very carefully documented. And we interviewed the guy who said he had briefed Congress about it. And we never heard back from Congress on it because they couldn't talk about it because it was classified. But anyway, so we did get a story into The New York Times that raised the question of whether any of these craft had been uh, actually recovered which we we believe to be the case and then uh, earlier this year leslie made contact with uh, david grush a high level intelligence guy who uh, claimed that um, the government had been holding has been holding recovered craft Uh, he knew this he says from um, contacts he made in the government uh, information he got privileged information uh, he got from various sources. He did not himself you know, witness these crash retrievals. Uh, he didn't put his hands on any supposedly recovered craft, but he gave a good enough account to be really interesting to us. And we checked him out like we had checked out uh, Lou Elizondo, and uh, his, uh, his bona fides were very clear. Uh, you know, again, we didn't jump into this uh, without very carefully vetting him. And uh, we took, you know, we took that story to the Times. They weren't interested at that point or they not interested enough to run it. And we talked to the Washington Post and they were interested in the story. And they were going through all the steps that they would take to before they'd run the story. And then a bunch of things started happening that, that changed our timetable. Uh, Grush was getting threats. His name leaked out. We were very careful to keep him confidential until we were ready to break the story. He was always gonna go on the record, but it had to be in the context of of the story once it was fully, laid out, but his name leaked out on on the web, he was getting threats, it was getting very uncomfortable so we broke that story in the debrief, which is a very highly regarded website Leslie and I had written for them uh, before. They had their own vetting, they had a, a lot of experts, former intelligence people and defense people, they're very close to the defense industry. Uh, So they have very good people working for them. Anyway, so we broke the story of David Grush, who said, again, for the first time at that level, that American intelligence knew that craft, intact craft and pieces of craft, but also entire craft had been recovered and were being held in undisclosed locations. So that was the story uh, that really, again, kind of moved the needle.
0: He mentions that we've potentially are in possession of craft, but he also says that maybe you were in possession of non-human biological evidence, I believe is the way they put it. Could you elaborate a little on that and kind of what he said?
1: Well, he, he didn't say that as a part of the interviews with us. See, what we did, uh, we found out, and again, I think this really goes to his credibility and the credibility of our story. Um, when, when Grush was talking to us and, and was preparing to go public uh, as a former intelligence officer he was compelled to go to the government and get clearance uh, for what he was about to say Uh, there's a whole Pentagon office of I forget the acronym you know defense clearance and whatever but there's a process that intelligence people have to go through uh, if they don't want to break the law and go to jail that they have to um, submit their information to a clearance office to make sure they're not disclosing classified information because they don't want to go to jail either. So uh, Grush very meticulously and properly uh, went to this office and said, uh, I'm, I'm talking to two reporters and I want to say that I know from my contacts that the U.S. is holding uh, intact and partially intact a, a craft, not, not of human manufacture among other things uh, and he received uh, okay to to do that now that didn't mean that the Pentagon said okay we agree that you're telling the truth what they said was well we have no security grounds to uh, to block you okay Uh, in other words you're not disclosing anything of of a of a prohibited nature I think that's an important distinction so they weren't endorsing his uh, his information they were just saying we're not we're not stopping you, but on the other hand, if he had been saying something that was, uh, in any way, contrary to, to law, they could have stepped in and said, "You, you cannot say this." But anything he told them that he was going to tell us, and and then we saw his his application to this office uh, for for clearance, and the answer they gave there was that we have no interest in in preventing you from saying this. So, and by the way, he was represented by a former inspector general of the intelligence community, uh, Chuck McCullough, who, who was the first inspector general of, of the intelligence community, a very high level guy who is now in private practice. So that also lent credibility to David Grush's information because presumably uh, a lawyer who was, uh, you know, a very top intelligence official would not lend himself to a, f- a fabrication anyway. So we we had uh, Grush's account of what he was going to tell us. And we had the fact that the government had no quarrel with him telling us that Uh, And alien bodies was not part of that. He said that later in another interview and I'm not saying it's true or it's not true. I'm just saying that that was not the information that he submitted to the government for vetting and um, which we stuck to and I think strengthened our report what he said was sensational enough that the government had you know a a craft not of this earth and he also said other things that congress had been lied to and congress had not gotten uh, the proper information uh which is potentially criminal by the way Uh, and i think congress is looking into that that there are pockets in in the in the government uh, and out of the government where this information is being held outside of proper uh, channels and the government really uh, I mean the, the Congress has a mechanism for handling extremely sensitive information there's the gang of six or gang of eight I think you know the 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 chairman and chairwomen of different committees um, but Congress is supposed to handle the most secret information to at least to know about it and this information was not shared properly with congress is what david grush complained so in other words there are there are pockets where this information and we encountered this in our reporting there is super 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 secret a little corners of the government where information is being uh, kept and pr- projects are being run that are outside of all oversight proper oversight special access programs where there is a mechanism for you know supervising them and it's not being adhered to anyway Um, And this holds true for contractors and parts of the Pentagon and all kinds of places. So we don't know very much about that because it's all deeply, deeply classified. Anyway, so that's what, you know, what what Grush brought and what we stuck to in our report.
0: Yeah, one of the things that sticks out to me about Grush is that a lot of the information that he has doesn't seem to be firsthand knowledge. It seems to be what he's heard from others. Was there any concern on your part in reporting on the story when you didn't necessarily have like video footage like you did from the original article you published.
1: Yeah, well, that's always a problem, you know, in this this field that uh, ideally, you know, as a reporter, you want to, you know, have, uh, you want to be shown the craft. (laughs) You want to put your hands on it. Uh, You want to send it out for testing, but uh, it doesn't work that way in this field. I mean, and, and you just have to say that. Uh, that, we, no, we don't have the craft. Uh, we don't have the pieces uh, the, to, to be analyzed. But the next best thing is who's making these claims? Are these people credible? Um, is there any secret agenda that they have? Who's, you know, who is saying the opposite? Who's knocking it down? And again, we came up with the fact that Rush was highly decorated. He would served in Afghanistan. Uh, he was highly credible. And there, were, there have been efforts, by the way, more recently, uh, to, to take him down, to shed bad light on his mental state and this and that, um, as, as many uh, you know, soldiers who served in, in uh, Afghanistan and other war zones have encountered. He had some problems as a result. He got treatment for that. It didn't affect his service in the government. He was uh, still you know, highly placed. But you know now people are using that. Some people to you know cast doubt on what he had to say. Um, we don't think it has any real relevance to his information, which, as I said, we we carefully vetted. Um, and I think there are going to be other whistleblowers coming forward now to uh, to add to that story. So that's the next step, which. Uh, we and, and a lot of other journalists are, are pursuing.
0: Yeah, that's actually what I was curious to ask you is, what do you think is the next step? And, and you've touched on it a little bit, but, you know, looking forward to the next five, 10 years.
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, there, are, there are other whistleblowers. You know, the, the, the whistleblower legislation was written into the National Defense Act. There was a mechanism for uh, people who had information in this field, specifically the field of UAP, who had uh, information there was a mechanism for them to provide that information to congress not to go to the media not to you know go on television and and talk about it but to provide it to certain agencies and bodies equipped to handle this information uh, and they couldn't be prosecuted um, no matter what their earlier agreements with the government were if they had information about secret programs that were relevant to congress that congress had not gotten not been told about Uh, they were protected under this legislation, which was authored by Senator Gillibrand and others, and it was written into the Defense Act. So there are other people out there who have this information. We understand. Some of them have already talked to Congress. We don't know what they said because it's classified. And Grush gave, uh, you know, 1,100 pages of classified testimony to Congress. We don't know what he told Congress in that testimony because it's classified. But there are others... um, who either have or, or, sh- or will be or may be uh, coming forward now uh, to provide that information. And the question is, uh, at what point might they come out and, and talk publicly? That, that's the answer to your question. That's the next step.
0: You've written a number of books on the UFO phenomenon, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that work, kind of what you've written, if our listeners want to follow your work and anything new you're working on in the future.
1: Great, well, the most recent book uh, my, my wife and I collaborated on, it's called UFOs, OHS, uh, Mysteries in the Sky. It's the first, or as far as we're aware, non-fiction book on, on UFOs or UAP for children. Uh, it's a picture book beautifully illustrated by an artist who worked with my wife, Deborah, on uh, another book. It's, it's really a, a way for parents and teachers and librarians uh, to grapple with this very difficult subject uh, on an early level. I mean, it's said for children six to nine, but uh, really it's for, for any young person who's encountering this field uh, or seeing stuff on TV, you know, which is pretty sensational and wants to know about it. And it's a way of bringing up the topic. So we're very proud of that book. It just came out a few months ago. Um, we're doing a lot of talking about it, um, different groups and you know UFO festivals to acquaint people with it. So that's the most recent book. And um, and my last book, as I said, was the book that got me started in, in this field in the first place, which I was working on when uh, the, the Time Story came up in 2017. I'd already been working on this since 2004 which is the believer it's the story of john mack the harvard psychiatrist who really stumbled into this field because of the stories that people were telling him about encounter paranormal encounters that he could not explain with all his you know psychiatric expertise these people were telling very credible stories of encounters with with alien beings and he could not figure it out uh, but from, from the way they were telling the stories, uh, both uh, under, you know, enhanced, some enhance, John Mack didn't like really to use hypnosis, but there were relaxation techniques that enabled people to, to encounter memories that had been repressed, let's say, and the way they reacted when they when they retrieved these memories was so convincing to John Mack that he believed that they were telling the truth, that they had encountered some extraordinary uh, phenomena, alien intelligence, whatever, and very detailed accounts of being taken aboard spacecraft and subjected to medical procedures. But so many of these stories tracked each other. There wasn't just one story, but it was a whole you know, system of stories that, that were kind of congruent, different yet similar uh, that convinced him that something had happened to these people that he could not explain. And he, again, he didn't pretend to, to understand. He, early on, he kind of leapt to some conclusions, which I talk about in the book, that maybe were premature. And the, and the whole question came up was, were these experiences real or did they happen in some other dimension? And initially, he, like Bud Hopkins, were convinced that these were real, that they happened in actual real time in in some kind of reality. Later, he wasn't so sure, because the more you go into this field, the more complicated it becomes. That's really a hallmark of this whole business, that um, the people who claim to have the answers, the so-called skeptics, Uh, Who are quick with it with a with a solution and an answer um, are really misrepresenting the complexity of um, Of the evidence Um, and there is evidence. There is evidence. It's it's fragmentary Um, It's 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 uh, difficult to get your hands around the you know places where UFOs were seen to land it did show some Uh, evidence of of disruption of the landscape. People had scars. Second and third parties witnessed some of these encounters. So, you know, it's not totally without evidence, but the evidence is is difficult. Um, And that's, again, a hallmark of it. But anyway, that was the story of John Mack. And of course, he ran into trouble at Harvard. Uh, The Harvard establishment wasn't happy with that, with his with his increasing fame he was going on he went on oprah uh, to talk about this and everybody said oh he's a harvard psychiatrist who believes in aliens and uh, so harvard put him under investigation in the end they basically cleared him that he hadn't done anything wrong he was a little too enthusiastic but he hadn't uh, you know uh, violated any of harvard's uh, rules and regulations he was you know uh, he was never uninstated there and then he was run over in london uh, by accident by a drunk driver, uh, as fate would have it. But I had all his records uh, and he was an extraordinary man. I think he was very courageous to um, take on the establishment because he knew that he was going to ruffle a lot of feathers. Um, And and he did.
0: What's the best way for people to find your books if they want to check them out? And um, what's the best way for them to follow you if they want to see what's coming up next?
1: Well, I have a website, ralphblumenthal.com. Everything is laid out there. Uh, The books are all listed there, interviews, contact information. Um, ways to email me. Uh, the books are available, uh, The Believer, and, and UFOs both on Amazon. Uh, there's audiobooks, mm, there's Kindle. Uh, so today, it's very easy. You don't have to walk to the bookstore <laughs> or go to the library. You can do everything online. But So the, the books are
0: easily available. I might try to squeeze in one more question here since we have a little bit of time. Um, you Something you said there earlier about Hopkins thinking about that these potentially may not be physical experiences happening and maybe something that's happening in another dimension, that's something that has come up in the congressional hearings as well. I believe Grush said something along those lines that these could be interdimensional craft. Can you talk a little bit more about that and kind of what you're feeling and what you've learned through researching on that topic?
1: As I said before, the, the more you go into this, the more complicated it becomes. And only the people who, don't, who, who haven't invested... Uh, appropriate time and effort to, to look into this phenomenon, uh, a quick with with answers, which in my mind uh, are, are not available at this point. We just don't know. So uh, there's many strange aspects to these craft Some people see them, other people don't. Two people together, one person may encounter this, another person may not. It, it seems to operate not by the normal laws of physics that, that we understand certainly the aerodynamics of these craft operating underwater I mean I talked to a guy Bob McIver an intelligence guy who told me he was on a submarine some years ago a Navy submarine when something blew past at the, at the speed of sound underwater now th- that seems to be an impossibility by the physics we understand that because of the resistance of water nothing can can approach a speed of 700 miles an hour on land I don't know what the speed of sound is underwater but uh, let's say 700 miles an hour underwater nothing can do that given the resistance of water and yet he said that was his experience and other people saw it on the on the submarine that he was on so there are many unanswered questions obviously about the physics of these of these objects how can they do what how do they traverse these extraordinary distances if, in fact, they're coming from uh, across the universe or across the cosmos, or are they coming from some dimension that's folded in our dimension? Are they right next door? That was another uh, hypothesis of, of the whole UAP phenomenon, that they're not coming from you know light years away, but they, they're existing right next to us somehow in another dimension. It sounds like mumbo jumbo. Uh, And a scientist would say well how does that exactly work and I'm not a scientist and I can't I can't explain it and I don't think scientists can explain it but um, we know that you know given enough time we are understanding increases of the phenomena of the universe and. Uh, There are many things that we don't understand, that that we didn't understand before, that we understand now. There are many things we don't understand now that we may may understand in the future. But it's not a static thing that, you know, we now know everything that there is to know, that that would be complete hubris. So there may be other dimensions. There may be other uh, ways that these things exist and don't exist at the same time and and that's what we have to keep our minds open to again uh, you, you come if you have any kind of smarts at all you enter this field with complete humility and it's only the people who are diehard you know they call themselves skeptics but they're not skeptic because a true skeptic is is open to different possibilities these people have their mindset that this is complete nonsense and um, you know it's hogwash and it's ridiculous and it will it is ridiculous but not in that way. It's just something that we still need to, to figure out. And at least if you're, uh, if you're devoted to the search for truth, you've got to compile the evidence. Just look at the accounts that people have given and evaluate it, and try to figure out well what might fit this, um, you know, this range of experiences. That's all.
0: Ralph, thank you so much for your reporting on this topic. I think it's super important to keep this topic in the public's perception um, and not let it slip away because this is such a just. If, you know, what we're seeing is true, I mean, it's truly, it's truly one of the most important things in entire human history. So, and I, I would be such a shame for it to disappear again and between the era we've had Project Blue Book to now, for it to fade away like it did before. I think
1: it's too late for that. I don't think yeah, that mini can it. be put back in the bottle. Uh, I agree with you that I think uh, it's got to move forward, maybe in fits and starts, but... Uh, people people are demanding to know. So whether disclosure is something that's gonna happen in you know six months or six years, I mean, who knows, but I think we're on the right track.
0: A special thanks to Massimo Teodorani for allowing us to use his music as the underscore for this episode. You can listen to more of his music under his artist name, Totem Tag, on Bandcamp. A link is in the description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners, which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by R.J. Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk.